This podcast brought to you by Hope 103.2. We're at James chapter 4, verse 13 through to 5.11. This is our eighth of nine Sunday mornings in the letter of James, the letter in the New Testament written by Jesus' half-brother. You remember that he was from the Gospels. We're told that he was an unbeliever and a cynic until Jesus rose from the dead, appeared to him and seemed to completely transform him. James then became a leader of the church, a writer of this letter in the New Testament, and a great, a great man concerned for transforming Christianity. And I'm convinced that this letter that he's written is a challenge to the church, that when Jesus Christ comes into a person's life, it is a very deep transforming experience and a very long eternal blessing. And because the world that we live in is trying to get by on shallow and short things, we desperately need the gospel in our world. And James is challenging this church that is professing faith to experience all the deep and the long things that Christ brings. We had some interviews for preschool teachers. We were looking for somebody to fill a gap in the preschool. And in the series of people that we interviewed, there was a lovely girl, Chinese girl, 30 years old, been in Sydney for about five years. And she was converted on the campus of Macquarie University when two students asked her if she understood what Easter was all about and then explained to her. And so we asked her as a little group if she could tell us about how she came to faith. And she immediately started to weep and talk about how good God was, how gracious he was, how good he'd been to her. And we, of course, who have been Christians for a number of years, we were, I think we were quite moved to see somebody so deeply grateful and appreciative for salvation when we had perhaps begun to get a little forgetful and cool And we do get forgetful. We do get cool in the Christian life and our values shift very quickly and we become like the world. And that's why James has written this wonderful letter to call us back to what we have really received and to how we might really live. Uh, We're going to look at 4.13 to 5.11. It's three paragraphs. I had planned to do just the first two, but we we need the third as well. We need the third as well, because if you look at the three paragraphs as a whole, this is what they say. Now listen you, paragraph one. Now listen you, paragraph two. Obviously two groups of people who need a wake up. But you, brothers. Two groups of people who are on the wrong track. But you, brothers and sisters, on the right track. We need the three paragraphs, and I've called the three paragraphs, first of all, remember the Lord, 4.13 to 17. The second is fear the Lord, chapter 5, 1 to 6, and the third is trust the Lord, chapter 5, verses 7 to 11. First of all, remember the Lord. Those of you who have young children may have Colin Buchanan CDs playing in your car as you drive around, and you'll know that Colin Buchanan has a great theme, which is remember the Lord, remember the Lord. Our children are too old to have listened to Colin Buchanan. We drove around listening to Salty the Singing Songbook, and it was so saccharine we had to throw them out, or we were all in danger of getting diabetes. But uh, that's who our children listen to, Salty the Singing Songbook. 
And um, Colin Buchanan is perhaps more up-to-date. Remember the Lord. That's chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. Let me read the first two verses. 13. Now listen you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Now, these are famous words that have pr- produced the DV, which many saintly Christians have written into their correspondence for centuries. DV being the Latin for God willing. I don't think James is so keen that we start writing DV in our letters, although it wouldn't be a bad thing, but he's extremely keen that we think in terms of God's sovereign control and don't become presumptuous. So I want to remind you again in 4.13, the phrase, now listen you, and then chapter 5, verse 1, now listen you, and then chapter 5, verse 7, therefore be patient brothers. James is speaking first to people who need to remember the Lord, then to people who need to fear the Lord, and finally to people who need to trust the Lord. And my question to you as we think about this this morning, friends, is, is James writing chapter 4, verse 13 to Christians or non-Christians? I think the answer must be that he may be writing to Christians. It's possible to have people in the church, in the fellowship, We know from chapter 1 that there were rich and poor in the church. It's possible to have people in the assembly who easily forget the Lord. It's possible that even a real Christian can live as if Christ is irrelevant. But the surprise of this paragraph is that James, I think, listen carefully to this, is addressing probably the outsider who's living very boldly and very foolishly. And James is addressing the outsider for the good of the insider. That is, he's having a gentle shot at the person who's completely careless of the Lord because he wants to remind the believer that that is a ridiculous way to live and that the way they're living is wise. Imagine if in a sermon this morning I said something like this, the man or the woman who says in their life, I do what I like, I make my plans, nobody interferes with my plans, you are a fool. Now the bulk of people who think like that are completely outside this church. They're not listening, they don't care that I say it, they're not heeding what I'm saying. But it's just possible that when I say that, it could be a comfort to you because you find, as I do, so many people in this world who forget the Lord and live as if he's irrelevant. We find that deeply disturbing, if not slightly threatening. And we we ourselves wonder every now and again whether our submission to the Lord is all that worthwhile since so many people who don't submit to the Lord are doing so well apparently without the Lord. And therefore, this paragraph in a strange way is comforting. It comforts the Christian who watches the non-Christian and watches the non-Christian boast and brag and seem to get away with it. But of course, we'll never get away with it. 
Two things to say about um, Christianity and business, because this is a business section. This is people who plan to travel and go to various places and to be successful. Two things to say about Christianity and business. First, the Bible never demonizes a class. The Bible never demonizes the rich or demonizes the poor, nor does the Bible idolize a class idolizing the rich or idolizing the poor. The Bible teaches that you can be rich or poor and sin runs through us. It infects us, it pollutes us, it separates us from God and we need salvation and we need the grace of God. Everybody is like that. doesn't matter what your circumstances, doesn't matter what your bank balance, we're all in need of Christ. The second thing to say about Christianity in business is that James in this section is not criticizing good planning. We thank God for good business men and women. He's not against wise business. He's not against forward thinking, strategic planning, skillful preparation for the future. He's not having a shot at life insurance. The Bible applauds all forward thinking. What James is criticizing simply is presumption. This is the person who says, I'm in control of my life. Nobody interferes with my plans. And if you look at chapter 4, verse 13, you'll see three marks of this presumption. The first is the little phrase, today or tomorrow. Here is the person who says, time belongs to me. May, this, may do this today, may do this tomorrow. It's all in my hands. Second little phrase in verse 13, this city or that city, the world is mine. I'm going to choose Third little phrase in verse 13, we'll make money. Success is mine. James replies in verse 14, tomorrow is a complete mystery to you. You can no more describe what will happen tomorrow with certainty than fly to the moon. And he goes on to say in verse 14, your life is a mist. It's a little word that only appears twice in the New Testament, once in Acts chapter 2, where it means smoke. Your life is a puff of smoke, says James. And uh, when we think about the universe where God has placed us, and when we think about eternity in which we live, we could not be more tiny or temporary. This is not to say that we are not extremely significant to God. He has made us in his image. He's made us for eternity. He's come in the person of a human into the world, in the person of Jesus. He's come in order to save us, bring us into relationship with him for eternity. It's, it is mind-boggling. The only explanation I can give for this is that he is incredible tiny little specks like us, and we interest him immeasurably. And this is not because we are wishful thinkers. This is because of the proof of the historical Jesus, that God, the God of the universe, who is so massive and holy, is actually interested in you and me for fellowship and relationship for eternity and has paid the ultimate price of sending Jesus to die in order to make that possible. We are of immeasurable interest to God, but we're tiny and we're temporary. And this little word, uh, mist or smoke, is a reminder, isn't it, that when you go to the crematorium, there's that very sobering puff of smoke that goes up at the top of the chimney 
to say that body, it's gone. The person is not gone, but that body is gone. And what could be more mistaken, therefore, for us to think that we're in control when we're told quite plainly, verse 15, everything depends on the Lord's will. Now, friends, why is James teaching this? Because, verse 16, presumption is evil. It sets itself up way too high. It uh, forgets the Lord. It makes us into inflated fools. And so James is not saying, as I mentioned before, that we should just go around writing DV on letters, but that we should start to think of God's total sovereign control of the world in which we live and our life as well. We know that tomorrow can bring anything at all. I'm not telling you anything new when I say this. I remember being in the UK once and talking to a guy in a photo shop uh, who was obviously Australian, and I asked him how long he'd come for, and he said he'd come for six months with his wife. They'd just retired, and they were going to have six months going all over the UK and Europe, and his wife had been hit by a car on day one, and she was in hospital for four to six months while he spent the, the, the four to six months basically hanging near the hospital in the centre of London for the whole time that they'd planned. Everything had changed. All the plans, all the life plans had all changed in one day. Then I was watching a documentary on Bill Clinton this week and I saw that at the top of his success as he'd just been re-elected, he said this in his speech, we are winning back our optimism, the enduring faith that we can master any obstacle. I thought to myself, what a thing to say. And already the Lewinsky affair was unraveling and he was about to be confronted and seriously, seriously brought low. Now, not every tomorrow is ominous. God has plans for his people, for you tomorrow, which are wonderful. New mercies every morning. But we can't know exactly what they are because tomorrow is completely in his hands. And when a, a tiny and a temporary person thinks that they control time and space, you really have moved into dangerous territory. And I want to remind you to beware Sunday Christianity. Do you not find it much easier on Sunday to sing and hear of the greatness and the goodness of God, and then you get up on Monday and you move into an environment where God appears to be irrelevant. And friends, you've got to make a decision. You've got to make a choice. He's either as big as you say he is on Sunday and therefore as big on Monday, or he's as small as he appears on Monday, and therefore we ought to sing of him small on Sunday. We've got to make a decision. He either governs the weak and the world or he's just little. And if he's great and good, as you say and rightly sing on Sunday, we need special grace, don't we, to wake up on Monday and see his sovereign power in everything. And that's what James is getting at. So verse 17, which is the finish of the section, seems to say you probably agree. But the question is, will you do it? I think this first little paragraph is a warning to presumptuous believers, but they're the minority. I think it is primarily saying to the humble Christian, your dependence on God is very wise. Uh, Kathy and I are not very wise, 
and we are slowly learning to begin to be wise. And so one of the things we seek to do on a regular basis is pray for whatever we're going to. So if we get in the car and we're going somewhere, could be just a lunch or something more complicated, we're learning to pray that God would govern what we go to. That's what James, I think, is saying. Don't walk into the future as if God is irrelevant. Do not forget the Lord, remember the Lord. Second paragraph, chapter five, one to six, fear the Lord. Exactly the same phrase in chapter five, verse one. Now listen, you. This time I think we can be even more sure that James is not attacking Christians. Uh, when I first looked at these verses on Monday to think ahead for Sunday, I thought to myself, we're gonna have a very angry sermon on Sunday, aren't we? This is a passage which is all sort of feisty and aggressive, but the commentators uh, cleared my brain and helped me to see that this is what is called a prophetic prediction or sometimes it's called a prophetic lament. And what the Old Testament prophet would do is he would run the film of time forward for the person who was neglecting the Lord and say, start crying, start panicking, because this is what you're facing. And suddenly he would push them forward to the outcome of their godlessness. And that's what James is doing here. He's saying to rebellious people. Now listen you, this is what's coming. And he describes people, verse 3, who hoard wealth for themselves. Verse 4, basically exploit their workers. They're always interested in their own prospects. Verse 5, they've started to live in such luxury and decadence that nothing else matters. And verse 6, they are actually persecuting the righteous. Now, again, I want to ask you this morning, friends, because I know that you're thinking people, is James writing to Christians or non-Christians? And the answer again is that he may be writing to Christians, but it is more likely that he's describing what it will be like for the evil person who lives as if there is no God and who abuses their power and their wealth. And why does James do this? Because he wants to comfort you. He wants you to know that the person who intimidates you, shocks you, unsettles you, frustrates you, bewilders you, and maybe persecutes you, is on a very short meter. And that's why he says, verse 1, you people who think that this world is it and God is nothing, you might as well start wailing now. Verse 2, your wealth has rotted, the moths have eaten your clothes, your gold and silver have rusted. Now, I presume James is not a sort of metallurgical nincompoop. I presume he knows that gold and silver don't rust, but the point is, you see, that the gold and silver might as well be iron ore because it's gone, it's perishing, it's doing you no good if it's been your goal and your God. And all of this is an echo, as we've seen again and again in the letter of James of the Sermon on the Mount, because Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19, don't lay up treasure on earth where moths and rust destroy. And James says, now I'm gonna show you what it'll look like for the person who lays up treasure on earth and makes this world their God. 
Now, we do need to take this seriously ourselves. I don't want you to just point the finger at somebody else because we all think that anybody else is richer than us. Isn't that the way it works? Anybody has a dollar more than us is rich and we're poor. But actually what James is saying, I think, to us all, me included, me especially, is that to hoard money for yourself is a dangerous thing. It tends to kill off your spiritual faculties because it makes you fairly independent, self-sufficient, and tending to arrogant. And so I would suggest to you that instead of hoarding, which then leads to exploiting and luxuriating and even persecuting, if that's the decline, I would suggest to you that you get into the habit of giving everything you can for eternal good. If you're able to help gospel work, don't turn away from the gospel opportunity. Don't go with the greedy world. When you get to the end of your life and you've collected a huge amount and then suddenly it's useless and it's done nothing, it's going to look extremely tragic for eternity. But where you have shifted things into gospel opportunities, you'll never be ungrateful. You'll never be sorry. You'll always be thankful. All the fruit of that will appear around you for eternity. I worked in a church once where a man had a marriage break up, extremely wealthy man, walked into church, listened to the gospel message preached. He became a Christian. It was as if he came to the front of the church, although he didn't do it literally and physically, but it was as if he came and said to the minister in charge, I have a huge amount of wealth and I want it to be used for this gospel. Whatever is needed, I want to make it possible. What a blessing he was. Now we can all do that on a small scale. He did it on a big scale. Some people in this church, this congregation, do it on a big scale. How much we thank God for that. All of us can do it on some scale. Let's not miss the warning. It's a good warning for us, but it's primarily a window into the future for the godless man. And James says the future for such a person will be terrible. And you'll notice even in verse 6, those who persecuted, says James, the righteous, that's what it says literally, those who persecuted the righteous and didn't oppose or fight back, God will. God will take up their cause because, verse 4, their cry went into his ear. Friends, I want to encourage you in the midst of a very rich city where people seem to be doing extremely well. Someone was telling me this week that we're an AAA rating as a country, and that's very rare around the world. Don't go the way of the world. Don't just hoard and collect and indulge like a pagan. But at the same time, do not despair when you see the godless man appear to get away with indulgence all his days. He won't. And don't fall for the godless man who appears to get away with murder. It's impossible. We've seen a lot of that this week. It's impossible that what has happened will not be judged and put right. The last little section is trust the Lord, verses 7 to 11. 
This is a complete change of phrase. It's no longer, now listen you, now listen you. Verse 7, be patient, brothers and sisters. Literally, therefore, be patient. And you're to be patient, and I'm to be patient, because presumption is very foolish, and worldliness is very fatal. We are to be patient. We are to be counter-cultural people. We don't fall into the trap of thinking that this is all there is and you only get one life and so you might as well collect everything you can and enjoy everything you can and see everything you can because this is it. That is to completely disagree with Christ. And James has been lifted out of such short-term thinking into resurrection eternal thinking is pleading with us to come to our senses and to recognize that in a million years' time, the believers will be with Christ. And in a billion years' time, the believers will be with Christ. What a tragedy to live our quick mist of a life, our smoke puff of a life, as if this is all there is. No, we are to wait, verse 8, for the Lord's coming, which is always near. And we're to be patient and firm. And we're to be, verse 7, like a farmer, the farmer who waits for the crops, the farmer does not expect everything immediately. Christians must not expect everything immediately. Farmers wait for the reward at the end. Christians must wait for the reward at the end. He goes on to say, if we don't have a proper estimate of now and the future, verse 9, we're going to fall into sin and idolatry, or verse 9, grumbling. One of the commentators wisely says, grumbling is particularly likely to occur when we are under pressure or facing difficult circumstances, we vent the pressure from a stressful work environment or from ill health on our close family and our friends. James wisely says, think big, big process. We're not expecting pain-free living in the present. The long perspective is the one we need. Now, friends, he's not asking us to do the impossible. There are many who are going through very tough circumstances at the moment. Suffering is extremely difficult. There are times where you can't even, you can't even concentrate because things are so difficult. And I think the message in the midst of a lot of suffering, and I've often experienced a little suffering, and ask myself, Mr. Preacher Boy, what is your big pious message? And the message is, be patient. Trust the Lord. Don't forget the Lord, but trust him. I'm not saying it's easy, but that's what James is reminding us. Be patient. The prophets, verse 10, in the Old Testament, they suffered and they waited for the Lord and they never saw him. Although Job, we're told in verse 11, he suffered and he was wonderfully rewarded. And he's the model, he's the example that James chooses to tell us that we too will be rewarded. Of course, all God's people will be rewarded. So I want to close and summarize again this morning. The three sections are, remember the Lord, don't be presumptuous. It's dangerous, it's slippery. Uh, do fear the Lord. Don't let others who don't fear the Lord deceive you. And do trust the Lord. Wait like a farmer. The short term has got its challenges. The long term is going to be great and glorious. Jesus, we're told in Peter, did not retaliate. He made no threats. 
He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins. I suspect that I will get a number of letters, as I often do, when I fail to say that you can have everything now. There's always people who write to me and say, what's the matter with you? Are you unconverted? Are you a pessimist? Have you not received the Holy Spirit? Why are you not experiencing everything now? And we know perfectly well that the sequence is cross, crown, or as James says, hard work in the field, harvest. Let's pray. Loving Father, we thank you for this precious word to us this morning. We pray that you would give us grace to remember you in all our ways. We pray that you would give us grace to fear you and to fear for those who are lost. And we pray that you'd also give us grace to trust you and look forward to the, the coming of the Lord Jesus and a reward that outweighs all expenses. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.